Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Arsenal provide conclusive evidence that Friday night is a hell of a lot better than Monday night. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Black Man, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. What a weekend. And yeah, in case there was any... Oh, sounds like someone's got a case of the Mondays. That's a saying for a reason. Mondays stink. Fridays are great. Ladies and gentlemen, the weekend, right? Well, we got proof of it last week. Monday, not so good. Friday, very good. I am convinced, however, that the reason for that is because I am a huge jinx. And I was at the Palace game, which, to be fair... I don't care about the result. I don't care about the performance. Just being at the Emirates, an absolute joy and a wonderful, wonderful experience that I will carry with me for a lifetime. But Friday was better. Friday was very, very good. And in fact, the title of our podcast for the Monday game was, Is This Winning Football? And they'd shove that down my throat, didn't they? Because the answer is, yeah, you know what? It is winning football when you play like that. We're going to try to break down how we played like that. Um thought about just scrapping the Arsenal Vision post-match pod and doing a Manchester United post-match pod because, lol, holy cow, that was fun. I mean, the football was just universally fantastic this weekend. I mean, maybe one or two things you could nitpick, but we'll take 38 weekends like that in a Premier League season. That is for sure. Now, uh, Paul and Tim are coming up, but our first section... I'm pretty lucky because I get to speak to some very cool people in this job. And one of the things I get to do is speak to Sky Sports presenter. You may know him on Twitter at Clive PAFC. His name is Clive. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. So, you know, look, I'm just going to say it point blank. Um, Jamie Carragher, you know, his analysis is okay. But I could see you taking his place. And uh, they're going to have to make a pretty big bid. I mean... We're into Emil Smith-Rowe Bukayo Saka territory with you here. I, it's going to take maybe nine figures for them to pry you away from the podcast. Is that is that imminent, do we think? I'm not playing your games, right? No. So, um, so no, no. Um, yeah, interesting experience. I'm sure we'll come on to that a bit mm. later. But, um, Certainly will. I yeah. know where my home is. I know where my home is, right? It's right well, here. Well, especially, it's, it's good timing for me to have flown out there and met you because now, like, if you were going to Judas me or, you know, st- stab us in the back, like, you've met me, you know it would break my heart. And I'm, I'm actually a lovely person, even though it doesn't come across in the podcast. So you wouldn't want to do that to me. Anyone wondering what the heck I'm talking about? Uh, Clive was on Sky Sports, interviewed by the, the Monday Night Football guys, I guess technically on Friday Football. Uh, Neville and, and Carragher and, and Clive absolutely smashed it. We'll get to that. But I want to put that at the back of this. And again, Paul and Tim will be coming on this podcast as well because who wouldn't want to talk about that performance? I think Arsenal deserve to be the first thing we talk about today, though, even though Manchester United certainly have, have earned a place in our hearts with their performance over the weekend. Um, Clive, this was the kind of football that I think the very last podcast sort of mooted whether 
it was possible. I think one of the points I made after the Palace game was, I don't see a type of football where a dominant, territorially territorially dominant, chance-creating dominant performance is around the corner. It didn't feel like that was there, that when we won, it was edgy, we could edge it, we could, you know, transition and score a goal, but we couldn't dominate. And then ironically, in the very next game, we do all the things I didn't see. We pressed, we dominated territory. We had a half where we basically limited the opposition to no shots while we peppered them through an aggressive front-footed approach. It was a totally new arsenal. And I'm curious if you can sort of give me a hierarchy of causes for why we were able to produce such a different-looking approach to the game. Yeah, so um, I got a note this morning from uh, a listener sort of saying, I I listened to the uh, Palace um, podcast after the Villa game. And you guys were pretty wise. I'm thinking, oh, let me let me re-listen as part of research <laughs> with this. And um, mostly listen to myself. I listen to you all the time, Elliot. Really. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Bits and pieces of what, what we all said. And, and we sort of captured the problems in, in, in quite well. A little bit, we're a little bit worried, particularly yourself, about the future and are we playing the right style of football? So you extended it, your thought process on a bit. But when we spoke about the game, we captured it quite well, the structural issues, what we saw, where we were playing, and the lack of um, sustained play. And I called it punk rock football because we played in bursts. Remember that? So I will say on Friday on Friday night, this was pure Jurgen Klopp heavy metal football. Right? So what changed? So for me, I felt we made some tactical errors. When we, we noted that in the Palace part that, we sort of neutered maybe two of our best players in Party and Saka by where we played them and how we played them. We overburdened Party in the middle of the pitch. And we had Saka on the other side, on the right side. And and we said in the podcast, we, we sort of missed the structure of Saka and we need the structure of Lacazette. So here we are. A few days later, your jet lag just wearing off. You settle down Friday night. What do we have? We have a system and a way of playing that doesn't neuter your best players, but enables them. And for me, it creates multiple partnerships across the pitch. So in your mind's eye, if you just think about the pitch as almost like a series of squares and think about the people that are within them and think about the games within a game that you have on any given Friday, Monday, Sunday, Saturday, it doesn't really matter. And so I felt that our partnerships were broken in the four-three-three shape, but in this game, we immediately had partnerships all over the place. So we, our two centre-backs were left... A little bit more in a two, in a, in a two rather than a three, but we know that we know who our top centre backs are. On the right hand side, we have Tomiyasu and Saka in a more traditional up and down two way working relationship. On the left hand side, we have Nuno and, and Emma Smith Rowe. I'm sure we'll talk about Nuno. My goodness, what a player he could potentially yeah. be! What a player. His ability to time and run and drive and not start high but arrive into space was just transformative. Transformative to the team. We spoke about party without a partner. Double pivot, him and Lakonga. Lakonga decided I got some mistakes to make up for. Transformative performance from him. Thomas Party raised his level as he always does when he's got a functional partner next to him. Then you go to the front guys and I've often heard you've often heard me talk about sometimes we should play a front two or you know I think Lacazette's best role is as a pivot player and he's normally a second forward or a plus one one plus one forward 
And so we didn't so from, we didn't really play like a four two two per se, but we had four four two relationships. We had four four two partnerships. And where those players went within that partnership, it was a bit more fluid into four two three one. You can call it whatever you like. But the partnerships and the messaging was set. These are your partnerships. This is who we work with. Win these games within a game, win these zones within within the game. If we win those duels, we win those areas, and by doing it in partnerships, we're going to win the game. And I thought, just from a few tweaks, it was a completely different team. And then you add the, the bit that you love in it, the soft factors of what those players brought in. So we literally brought in three, you know, we brought in Nuno, who just ripped it full on. I'm tearing... Kieran Tierney, I'm coming for your number. That's yeah. how I'm going to play. You bring in Sambi in there, who's really a, a, a one of a double pivot, and he played like it. You know, made a mistake, wanted to repair it. Aggression, play, running through, turning around, passing, travelling, wherever you wanted, he had it. And then you bring in Lacazette, who, again, just playing, I said in the instant reaction, little notes I sent out. He was literally, to me, looked like he was playing the last game of his life. That's what he looked like to me. He was throwing himself into contact. Everything was one touch. Physical, falling over, buying fouls, smashing people, leading the press, setting the tone. And I'm, I, I tell you, mate, I've been going to watch Arsenal for a long, long time. I was completely, tr- in, I was completely stunned by what I was watching. I tell you, I was just going, oh my goodness, this is electric. The whole ground was electric. I didn't want to leave. I swear to God, I did not want to leave the ground. Mate, I've done a few laps. I've seen a few things. You know what I mean? This is not new for me. I did not want to leave. It was amazing from the first minute. And I kept thinking, is it going to fade? Is it going to fade? It kept going just about long enough. The girl helped just about long enough. The connection between what the players were transmitting, what they were doing, what the crowd saw, how we felt, the crowd connected to it, and they lifted that team. But boy, did that team, didn't they, they lifted us. It was truly a memorable, memorable evening. Yeah, and here's the thing, right? <clears throat> when every player 1 through 11 has a good game, that's on the coach. When every player 1 through 11 has a bad game, that's also on the coach, right? Because what I mean is, A player can have a good game or have a bad game. When every player looks good, that's the coach doing something right. You know what I mean? Because he's set them out with a plan and a strategy and a system that emphasizes their qualities. You know, we've talked a lot, Clive, about how we've struggled against a back three this season. Well, Villa came out in a back three, and we did not struggle. And I'm going to oversimplify it, and then you you can get me straightened out in terms of what I should really be saying. It feels to me that it was literally just a case of us deciding to do something we have not done against the back three this season, which is, you know what? We're going to push up. We're going to put our fullbacks up. We're going to keep our central midfielder in central midfield with his partner, and we're going to force your wingbacks to make a decision. And they couldn't get out because we decided to take the territory to them, and their wingbacks wing backs got pinned back, and they didn't have an exit, and we were able to control the territory. Whereas in the past, against teams like Brighton, for example— we sat a little deeper, we got pinned in, we didn't have the exit. And I know it sounds over simple. You know, a lot of people called this a 4-4-2, and I got to agree with Andrew from the Arscast. In I think it was sort of just our 4-2-3-1, except that Lacazette worked so hard to go from being sort of the 10 in buildup 
to being a second striker in the final phase and getting close to Aubameyang. But, Clive, I just think the willingness to push the fullbacks forward, to do the hard running, to get the central midfielders in midfield and up the pitch meant that we couldn't get pushed back by the wingbacks, by the back five. So is it is it as simple as just a little more bravery, a little more intention to be up the pitch? And or is there, you know, was there a little more complexity to it that I'm missing and I can guess no, which of the two you're gonna opt for? No, no, no. I think it's lots lots of things here. I think Arteta said that he felt that the game was won on Friday night in the moments after the Palace game. I think mm. the players recognized they dropped away, did manage the momentums in the game appropriately, made mistakes, and they got punished for it. And we managed to scramble something out of it. And I think that last minute goal at Crystal Palace, although you were not, you would wish you was there for the Friday game, I think you may have seen a turning point in the season in the Palace game. I think that last minute goal was bigger than, than I realized, to be honest. And, and obviously, the, it's not for me the mistakes that you make, it's how you learn from them. And to come out in that sort of flatter midfield shape, it, well, I, I agree with Andrew. I don't think it was a 4 4 2 because sometimes when you see names on a team sheet, you automatically put them into a system. But there was relationships and partnerships there. There was fluidity. And the way the wide men worked inside and out, it made their wing backs think we've got a problem. Do you know what I mean? And they couldn't, they couldn't push on, couldn't overload because they had to go back and get our people. Do you know what I mean? And I think our intention, our forward thinking, our forward passing made them adjust and we just ripped them. We ripped them. They they lost every jewel. We outrun them. We smashed them. So I think 4-4-2 actually is a good system against the win-back system or you match it up one for one. I don't like a stick on 4-2-3-1 versus a wing-back system. I think it leads too many gaps. There's, there's four lines to think about in a 4-2-3-1, whereas three lines to think about in a 4-4-2 or you match them up directly. So I think it's an easier system to to manage, not just from the sideline, but from make their wing backs think about where they stand. And I think that's really important to create the superiorities that you need. I do think this game, for me, showed was all about certain leadership intentions. I think I can't I can't look past Lacazette to be honest, mate. I can't look past him. He just has like just put on a cape. You know what you should, what I ask players not to do. But it seems to suit him. It seems to suit him. He's a true leader. He's a true leader, and the team missed one. You know, with Shaka not being there, we missed that player in there, in the central area, that just settled things down and created a tone by which others could follow. And and everyone followed him. You know, everybody followed his lead, his his engagement, his tackling. He he, he was just tremendous and. I think another player who also really gave us comfort was, was Gabriel. I think he was immediately in the battle with Ollie Watkins. He's so physical. He's so combative. And when you look around and you start to see these things, you you you, you spark from it. And I think other players just went for it. And, it. and I hear people talk about like the handbrake and Arteta's pinning people back. He's too structured. I just think sometimes in football, people just go through... Moments in their in their careers, in their game, where they are, in a game where they're engaged or not. I don't see a coach telling people not to play to their potential. The definition of a coach is to maximize the player's potential, maximize the team's potential. And every coach is thinking about this day and night. It doesn't always work. Sometimes you pick the wrong system, sometimes you send the wrong messages. 
Sometimes you have the wrong partnerships. Sometimes you don't see, it just doesn't work. Sometimes the players are brilliant in training and turn up on a day and they look leggy and they can't execute. But I never think a coach is sending out a team to play bad. And I think some of the analysis we get is like, well, Arteta's, it's Arteta's fault. He did that. He's making him do that. He's not letting him be this. Not, I, I never agree with that. And I'm, I'm going to say the, the words. It's just football. It happens sometimes. Sometimes you're overcome by an opponent. You're overcome by a better opponent. You're overcome by somebody more engaged than you, more in tune with his teammates. And you can say, well, our patterns need to be better. And, and yeah, you could be right. But I, I think in the end, what you really want when you're a coach, you want to tell people, you want to give them the framework by which to play. But the best thing you want to see is when players solve these problems themselves. Because coaching really is allowing people to have a framework by which to play, where they solve these problems themselves. When they solve them themselves, they become experienced, better footballers. And that's what he's trying to really create. Coaches on the field, people that can tactically adapt in-game to make sure they win those games within games. And Friday was that day when everyone said, enough of this crap. We're mm. taking this team apart. And that's what it looked like, like a team thing. It was a collective. It was every single one of them that did it. And it was just brilliant to watch. It's funny how many things got better, like the corners. Just some example, the corner kicks. They were fantastic. <laughs> just put into a great position. No more of this ridiculous short corners that wind up going back to the center backs. Like every little thing just seemed tighter. But one thing, Clive, like, look, I, I agree and I disagree in a sense. And I realize that disagreeing with you is dangerous for my. No, my no, 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 no. Do, only in the sense. Don't I don't that. think, I don't think any coach, no coach sends their players out to play poorly, but they may have a system that for one reason or another is either leaving some players exposed yeah, or or emphasize right emphasizes certain weaknesses. So the thing with the three two five buildup that we've been doing and like dropping the left center mid into the space behind where Tierney usually overlaps and keeping Tomiyasu in, like we all see it. There are a lot of teams that use it. I'm not saying it's bad. I think that like for example, it works better when you have someone like Shaka who can drop in deeper and still play the long passes with intention into the wings, you know, who, who sees the game very well from that deeper position, maybe not as well with like a Sambi Lakanga and certainly did not work when we tried to use Odegaard in that position. He didn't really know where to stand. Um, you know, it, it's left our right-sided attacking player sometimes looking a little too isolated. So there's been, you know, and then as a result, what happens, right? One of the right forwards drifts over to the right, wing and the, the central spaces look a little exposed. So, so we know those things. We've seen that build-up yeah. before. This build-up, Clive, was more of a 2-4-4 in build-up. Two center backs, a line of four because the, the fullbacks would start to push on, but not all yeah. the way up, and then a line of four attackers. Smithrow, Oba, Laka, and Saka in, in that final build-up. And two things that I noticed from this. One is just the way it pinned Villa back a little more and put our players in positions where they seem more comfortable. But you know what I thought it did, and I really wanted to get your thoughts on this. I thought it allowed us to do the thing that I have been whining about all season, trigger the press. Because when we lost the ball, in that 2-4-4, I thought the way we were able to press them, we had an extra player stretched out you know, horizontally across the pitch. It was harder for them to play out. The pressing in this game was so encouraging to see. But I think it was easier to do because you have... The two in the center with Oba and Laka. You have Saka and Smithrow wide, but then another line of four right behind them. So it, it's a little more dangerous if they can get in behind it. But for the first time, I think all season, that structure 
created an ability to press. And we've been talking about how we don't create easy chances. Villa couldn't play out. They turned it over a lot. And we had a lot of opportunities that came from, from those turnovers. So do you think the tweak in the structure enabled that press? I mean, is that is that what you think made it work better than we've seen before? Uh, I think there's, there's a lot to that. I think yes. Um, but then I ask you how we can suddenly do that. And so... I, I think we were very fluid in this game. I think we were three two five on occasions. I think mm. we were f- f- four triple two. I think we were four two yeah. three one. I thought we were four four, four two. two. Four. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I tell no. you what matters. I tell you what matters, Elliot. Is having good players that can do many different things. So if you want, say you you said two four four, right? I, fine, mm-hmm. fine by me. There's only one way we can play a two at the back high on their own versus two forwards, man to man. If they're super quick and super aggressive, yeah. quick both ways, could we do that with Maria and Holding? No, oh God. we couldn't. We couldn't <laughs> well, do I, mean, I don't know too many systems you can do with Maria and Holding, not to be <laughs> but, a jerk. But, we, and this is what I'm talking about. There was a moment in the game, and I'm sure you've seen it, and I saw it live and I spotted it. I think I said it on the instant reaction. There was a moment in the game, the ball goes out to, to Nuno Tavares. He runs down the line, lines blocked, chops, turns back on his wrong foot, crosses it back over to Tommy Assey, right? On his wrong foot. Tommy Assey runs down the right-hand side, blocked, chops, goes on his wrong left foot and flips it over the top to back to Nuno. And Nuno's out the other side. And I said, can you imagine Kalashnik and Bellerin running down, chopping on their wrong foot and switching the ball 30 yards across goal accurately? There's no way. Accurately to an opposition player? I can picture it. (laughs) There is no way. This is down to quality of footballer, quality of player. When you have the right players with the right attributes, with the right skill sets, with the right physicality, speed, tactical awareness, you can do what the hell you like. And you can change in-game. You can do anything you want because good players make things happen. On on one of the chances, Ben White's blocked off on his right foot, chops on his left foot, and he lobs a pass down to to Nuno. And Nuno then crosses the ball. Lacazette challenges for it. It comes to Saka inside. Lacazette penalty. That was on the out ball from Ben White on his wrong foot. 40-yarder over the top, over the right-back space onto Nuno. This is down to quality of footballer. Distribution, position on the pitch. You can play deep, you can play high, you can distribute from the back, you can do what you bloody well like. When you've got two footed, tactically aware, good athletic footballers. And I've got to say, it's got to be a hats off to the recruitment team because everybody, I think five of our six signings started, and Odegaard came on, and he was obviously known to us. Gabriel, obviously, a year or so previously, party a year or so previously. This team has been reshaped with the two kids coming in and you've got the two elder statesmen running themselves into the ground up front, making sure that everyone else had an armchair from which to play in. Yeah. It was incredible. I gotta well, say, incredible. And and I think we should make this point. Like, whether you are an Arteta skeptic, an Arteta enthusiast, all the way done with the guy for one reason or another, or all the way in love with him, you know, whatever you run the gamut of emotions on the coach. I think one thing we've all sort of agreed on in the past is it's time for a coach to go when you get the sense that the players have just stopped fighting for him, stopped engaging, you know, in his plan, stopped taking the instruction. And the one thing I will say is from the youngest kids to the elder statesmen, the players who usually you lose first, right? Those senior pros, look at how hard Alexander Lacazette was working for the team, 
having been frozen out much of the season. Look at how hard Aubameyang is running. Look at the the extent to which players really seem to be committed to the plan. Whether you like the plan or not, like the manager or not, whatever, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But there is no sense that I get that the players are not fighting for each other, for their manager, trying to carry out the tactical plan. And I mean, back to front, you know, he won't get a lot of discussion in this game just because he didn't have a lot to do. But Aaron Ramsdale... I mean, he did have one absolutely sensational save that I thought was crucial, but like his distribution, it's, you know, Leno played short the most of any keeper in the league last season, but playing short, all that meant was like knocking it to a center back right next to him. Ramsdale is breaking lines. He's firing laser beams into, you know, into Saka's feet from 30 yards. He's chipping it over on rushing attackers to fullbacks. He's got the whole range of it. There, There's so much to like in this performance. I think the thing we have to remember though is, 19, 20, 22, 22, 23. You know, is Tavares going to play this well every game? No, because he's young and it takes time. Is Saka, is Smith Rowe. When you have a team this young, you are going to have a wide range of performances and that's just part of it. One thing though, Clive, again, you know, not to harp on about the press and and the aggressiveness, but look, I think we can agree at this point that Arteta wants his team to keep clean sheets. Arteta wants defensive solidity to build from. Aston Villa had no shots in the first half. Not because we defended deep or played well defensively, but because they couldn't get within 20 yards of our goal. And I think this shows there's another path to defensive solidity, a path used by very good teams where you just don't... The easiest way to prevent the opposition from scoring a goal is don't let them get into your half. And so this was a very different type of performance defensively, Clive. And I I think it's worth contrasting the fact that they had no shots in a game where we were up the pitch and they couldn't get at us. So, I mean, yeah. do you think for, if you're Arteta and you look at this and you say, all right, I'm not doing this against Liverpool and City, all right, fine. But against some of these, I'm going to use the term weaker teams, and I know that that's harder to put your finger on in the yeah. Premier League now. But don't you think this is another approach, which is just to take these energetic, young, technically skillful players and let them play in the part of the pitch that emphasizes their quality a little more. And, and you know, you look yeah. at Smith Rowe, for example. I can't remember who was one one commentator, and not some wacko, like someone I think highly regarded said, Jamie he's the best player in the Premier League. Who Was it Carragher? Yeah. Best player in the Premier League with the ball at his feet. And when you have players like that that can quicken the tempo and can, you know carry the ball into the attacking third, what a difference it makes. So why not let them be up there a little bit more, you know, and, and yeah. defend from the front? I, I think up there is is key, and Aubameyang certainly did that, and so did Lacazette. And Lacazette did it in a much better way than Odegaard does, I'm afraid. And um, it's noticeable when Odegaard came on, we immediately started playing his football, his way, his style, which is slightly different. He immediately dropped into the right ten, and we had a, a more normal shape, shall we say? Mm-hmm. I think um, we spoke again. If you listen to the Palace pod, it was really quite good. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but it was really quite good, and we spoke about. If you we have a broken field team, if you want to be a broken field team, you need the ability to win the ball back and create broken field play. Right? For our broken field, show them your shorts, run away, sprinting forwards, of which we have many. And we did that. We engaged it from the front, we affected the entry pass, and we took the ball in midfield, we recycled it, and we went for people immediately on the transition, run through them, joining in with fullback areas. We did what we liked. We had our way with them. I think we are a team that needs to have engagement. We need to engage. I don't care where it is, whether it's mid or high up. I don't really care. I'm not a pressing expert per se. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's part of my own thought process. I know it's important, 
But I think it's important for this team because of the forwards we have and the type of players they are. We don't want them actually sitting in the box waiting for crosses. We don't want teams pushed all the way back. We want them to come on to us into the middle and win it as a mid block, if you see what I mean, and then go yeah. from there mm-hmm. and, try and then play through. So I don't, we're not City. We don't want to be that team. We haven't got the aerial presence in the box when teams decide to give us the wide areas and say, go on, cross it 44 times. We've seen that. So what we're doing is playing the football that suits us. And it is high energy, heavy metal, punk rock, go get it, get them, turn around and, and run straight through them. You know, and we did this consistently from from central areas, from out wide, both sides. And then when they did drop into a mid, we said, all right, come on then. And we then rat attack, upset, and then over the top round the second phase. We, we did what we liked, basically, because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know where to stand. And every 50-50, we smashed them. And then because I thought our distance were really, really good. So, yeah, we, we played the football that suits this team. Um, is that sustainable? I think some of it is. We can never tell the periods how long it's going to last. But the intention to how we play is repeatable. It is very exhausting, though. Our, our two elder statesmen could barely walk by the end of the game, and some of them didn't, and they had to go. But I wish for five subs, by the way, because Martinelli suits this football. He yeah, suits the higher-level football. He really does. Pepe, I'm just sitting there thinking, I need to step my game up, mate, because this is at a different pace. Odegaard's looking at this thinking... Can I get to this level of intensity? Because this is this this play suits us. How can I do it? He does lots of pressures statistically, but I know the pace of those pressures, you know, he needs to be really smart, maybe read the play a little bit more. I think it is the way forward, Elliot. I can hear the disco boys there saying, Yes, sir. I just say yes, we need to press more. And and they're right. This suits us. Broken field suits us. Creating attacks from other people's mistakes. It suits us. Definitely does. Mm. And if you're wondering, by the way, who the hell are the Disco Boys, it's not guys that Clyde met at the club uh, after <laughs> the game. It's the people in Discord who uh, on, our, on our Patreon are very opinionated about how we should play and also very uh, obviously intelligent in what they contribute. Yeah, there, so they absolutely. absolutely um, I'll, I'll finish with this, then we'll, we'll touch on the Sky thing real quick. I, I, And look, fans worry about lots of stuff. I literally have my mug in front of me that says that's why my friends call me Whiskers because I'm a worrier. It's okay for fans to worry about how's Martinelli going to get minutes or is Pepe going to play or, you know, how do we get this guy into the team or that guy into the team? And like, okay, totally fine. But the manager's job, he's got to balance that to some extent. He's got a cup tie midweek where maybe we'll see some of that. But players get minutes. You know how they get minutes? When they get their chance, they take it with two hands. And look what Tavares did. He's... He's going to be someone the manager's going to have to pick more after a performance like that. And that is totally fine. Um, you know, maybe Martin Odegaard's going to have to fight a little bit to get his place back. One thing that I'm really encouraged by with this, Clive, too, is mm. in general, I've been against both Lacazette and Aubameyang playing because when we've done it, the default has been Aubameyang getting chalk on his boots. And I think we all agree at this point that's not how he's most valuable. But Arteta came up with a, a system here and a way of deploying them together that let Lacazette do the false nine thing really well, still be in the box when we get into the final third, and let Aubameyang and Lacazette be a little closer together. And Oba had plenty of opportunities to stay central. So I think it's a really good sign that we found a way to use these two together that doesn't force one of them, usually Aubameyang, to play in a position where he's less comfortable. Yeah, we've done this before with Lacazette, played him inside. Until the day when we don't score, and what we say is then we lack creativity. Lacazette's not a 10, 
But for me, he's just a second forward. He's a one plus one. And, and, and I've, I've said this from the very first time I saw him at the Emirates Cup years and years ago. He's a second forward. He's never meant to play up front on his own. If he does, he plays with two sprinters in behind him. And he's just a true pivot. And he, he he's, he's actually not very big, actually, when you watch him live. He's, he seems to be almost shrinking, much like myself. <laughs> he's shrinking in size. And, um, but he plays big. He plays big. He gives it absolutely everything. And you can see the style of centre forward that we need or the style of second forward that we need going forward. Uh, you know, Lacazette, uh, you know, I wish he was 26 playing like this, you know, because um, he, was, he was truly inspirational to that team, you know, and to everybody watching, you know, he really did transmit something that I didn't think was in him. You know, I thought we'd seen the best of him. He's, he's, he's got every reason not to play this well and, um, and to give himself of himself physically. I mean, to absolutely lay his legs on the line, but he's doing it. Right. So um, fair play to him. One example he's setting for the younger players. Yeah, well, you're setting an example for the younger podcasters showing how talking sense, being articulate and intelligent, knowing your football can lead to some exciting opportunities. For example, having conversations with me every day. Uh, But there's even more exciting things that can happen to you. Kidding. Um, You can get the chance to talk to Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville, and you did that um, at Highbury. Uh, just before the game, a few hours before the game on Friday, you were on Sky Sports along with uh, Pippa and James. And obviously, I mean, you don't need me to tell you how how brilliant you were and how much you smashed it. I thought really just a reflection of the caliber of contribution, conversation, analysis that is out there from people who would be viewed as sort of, you know, fan content as opposed to the quote-unquote professionals. I think that line is blurring as the quality of, of what we are treated to as Arsenal fans continues to be elevated by so many people making such great content. But you were out there representing along with the other two I mentioned previously, and uh, I thought they were great as well. But I'd love to just hear a couple of minutes of your thoughts on what the experience was like. Um, You know, James spoke about it on the Arscast a bit, so I'm sure people have already heard a little bit about it. But I'd I'd just love to get your take on it. And, you know, I know, obviously, it was a a very unique experience and one that you thrived at. Okay, so I haven't heard what James said, but I've got to thank James for connecting me to his opportunities. I only met him a couple of weeks ago live. We, we mm-hmm. talk offline, but mm-hmm. a fantastic guy, right? I met his brother and, you know, really, really top guy. And obviously, you know that, Elliot, and obviously Tim knows him, but yeah, I can't say enough, right? He's just, I had a bit of a hard time connecting to James just because I find tall people unsettling. <laughs> so, uh, I had a, and I and had a good chat. With him. I didn't. I didn't know Pippa before this, but I did meet her briefly and her two young boys. And we had a chat, and it was, it was literally as you saw it. One take done, right? So we get there at Highbury. We get there. They they turn up a little bit late, and when they turn up, mate, talk about the ground electric. They were electric. They literally are just like so electric. Everything they do is so like big in personality. I'm thinking, whoa. I better get my game on here. Do you know what I mean? Because they're, <laughs> they're not messing around. They're looking at me thinking, who is this bloke? And then we have, <laughs> we have a little conversation about sisters, myself and Jamie Carragher quickly. And I thought, yeah, let's have a little chat here. So I started talking about, you know, 235, 325, you know, the rules that all the podcasters are nodding, listening, going, yep. And he looked at me and his eyes widened up and I thought, okay, he knows I'm not an idiot. Let's go. Let's start from here. You know, so we had a, then we started talking and, um, and what you heard was was exactly it in one take done. There's one other question that didn't get added because we just added on a bit at the end. Um, and I thought 
the conversation was it felt it felt okay and i don't mind saying i was a little bit nervy it felt okay but talking about football is not too hard for me to be honest <laughs> but I, I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to say more you know i i felt i left some things on the table but it doesn't really matter it's not about me it's about it's about everybody sh- sharing that time you know i didn't know how long it was going to last and and also the feedback has been amazing i i will say this and I was talking to a colleague at work today, Jack, and I sort of said to him, what the last couple of weeks has told me, more than anything, is that there is a silent majority of very nice people that just want to listen and talk about football. That is it. And when they hear something they like, they listen. They don't shout. They don't even give any feedback. They don't. They just listen and nod and like it. And going doing the live show, doing the awards, going to Torrington last week, seeing the feedback from all these different experiences, and doing a little bit of voiceover work, as you guys know, and and everyone's feeding back. And I've just realised there's so many nice people that appreciate sensible football conversation. Right? They might not agree, but they appreciate it, and they've suddenly woken up and wanting to say thank you for that right and um i find i found it a, a completely humbling experience the last couple of weeks i gotta say completely humbling i don't know what to do don't know what to do with it all it's just been so interesting it's been educational for me and it's it sort of told me you know i, don't know, I know you know this earlier but it, it made me think you know what, man, you gotta keep doing this and, and get yourself and be better at it do you see what I mean? Because people do appreciate it. And so that's where I'm going to be focusing on with your help, obviously. <laughs> and it's been a truly, truly humbling experience. I will say that again. Yeah, I'm not someone who wants to sit here and crap on social media because I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know Tim. I wouldn't know Paul. I wouldn't know so many of the people that I met in person in London. You know, I have people in my life like Dave and Tim also who who are friends, genuine, true friends, because I met them on social media. What I would say is that Maybe, you know, and I I think I've said this to you in person, you always hear, oh, social media is not real life. Social media is not real life. Well, the problem with saying that is people then go on social media and act like it's not real life. You know, throw fits, act aggressively, say things that they would never say to people in real life. And as a result, wind up with the experience that they deserve for that, right? Which is not making real friends, not having real engagements, not really connecting. But when you treat it like it's real life, it can produce real rewards in the form of relationships and experiences. And so I think it's nice meeting people in person because what you realize to your point is just that like there are people that want to have good, friendly, grown-up conversations. And that doesn't mean agreement. Disagreement's fine. But do it in a way that that can be productive. You know, there there are people I met, you know, that I know, like for example, through the Discord, who even in the Discord where we tend to be pretty good to each other have given me endless shit. And suddenly you're hugging it out and having a beer and having conversation in person and you realize like there is a lot more depth of personality and consideration out there than maybe our social media platforms because of their algorithms and the way they're structured allow us to see. But kind of got off topic here. The important thing is I'm glad you had that opportunity. I'm glad that we're getting a chance, you know, as a fan base and as football supporters generally to display that, you know, we are not knuckle dragging Neanderthals, you know, who, who can't consume better content. Because I think once you show that you want better content, better content gets made. 
You know what I yeah. mean? And and I think mainstream media hopefully will catch up and start, start delivering some of that. So, uh, you know, I, I think a great thing that you and James and, and Pippa got to do, really appreciate you doing it. We're going to step aside and, and let uh, Tim and Paul come in and we'll talk a bit more about some of the individual performances from the um, Villa game and what's coming in the weeks ahead and maybe even have a bit of a laugh at United because I still think that is absolutely necessary. Clive, uh, congrats again on a great experience, on a great contribution to this podcast and how much we appreciate you. And uh, we will chat with you, well, probably tomorrow, let's be honest, right? Thanks, man. I really, I really appreciate that. And, uh, and for the people that fed back, uh, trust me, it means a lot. So thank you very much. Okay, you bet. Uh, so uh, Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. We will uh, take a break, step aside, come back with Paul and Tim. But before we do that, I want to uh, give you a quick heads up about something happening at Blue Wire. As you know, they host our podcast, and they've got a new podcast of their own coming out. In 1995, Cal Ripken Jr., baseball player, broke Lou Gehrig's 2,130-game uh, consecutive games played record uh, the season after Major League Baseball went through a player strike and a canceled World Series, and it sort of saved baseball, captivated the city, the nation, the planet. Like, the world was obsessed with Cal, you know, the hard work, how good he was. He was on the face of milk cartons, like, just a huge story. But if you ever lived in Baltimore, which I have not, um, you've heard the rumor. It's a longstanding, salacious rumor involving Cal, Hollywood legend Kevin Costner, a mysterious power outage at Orioles Park and Camden Yards, Mac Montadon and Sam Dingman never truly believed the rumor until he met a friend uh, who's a police officer at a party who whispered, well, it's all true. From there, uh, they went on to do their own investigation. What's behind the rumor? That Cal and the Orioles went to extreme measures to orchestrate a fake power outage at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in order to preserve the streak. Uh, a slightly more salacious rumor than that regarding Kevin Costner. Well, on the new Blue Wire podcast, The Rumor, friends, lifelong Oreo fans, and seekers of truth, uh, Mac Montadon and Sam Dingman attempted to unravel the wild 24-year-old story before it unravels them. Because if their investigation reveals that it's truly true, the rumor would change the way we think about baseball, reality, and the very nature of how myths are made and destroyed. So, no biggie. You can listen to The Rumor on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, no time for witty banter right now because, well, first of all, we've got a lot to get to. And second of all, I'm probably the only one who would think it was witty or banter. So, Tim's on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. How was Malta? Yeah, very, very nice. Um, thoroughly recommend it to anyone uh, as a nice vacay spot, definitely. Mm. That reminds me of, um, you ever see Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Uh, yes. Is he talking about the Ferrari? Was he's like, if you have the means, I highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! Woohoo! Indeed. How is uh, not Malta? Uh, Feckin' miserable. It's mm. blowy. The wi- twenty-eight mile an hour winds. Miserable. Wet. Mm. Nasty. Yeah, sounds like uh, night in Brighton that I've seen in yeah. not too recent past. Uh, well, thankfully, that's all behind us. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a scintillating victory. Uh, Clive has already run through his thoughts on it, and we will certainly get to ours at this point. And uh, I, I think one of the places that I'd like to start, Tim, because I think it is just sort of an overarching question is, there are going to be a lot of people that look at the performances we've had up till now and set aside the results, right? Because we are on, to be fair, a pretty good run of results. This mm-hmm. was the first time I think this season we've seen us put the whole thing together. Not quite 90 minutes, but certainly a long stretch of dominance. You know, we finished the first half conceding literally no chances, but we didn't do it 
in the way we've been doing it, sitting deeper or mid-block, trying to transition through lar- large portions of the pitch. There was pressing. There was intent. There was more willingness to let both fullbacks get forward. I'm curious what you think, other than just you know bravery or decision-making by the coach going into the game, what you think was the biggest difference you noticed just in the way we approached the game tactically? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the most obvious thing is the formation, right? It was it was a four four two, essentially. And I've I've wondered this. I can't remember if I've ever actually said it out loud on the pod, but I've I've had a wondering, uh, a general wondering um, about this for a little while. Just just because from the point of view of the front two, like I really think Lacazette and Abamyang as a front two make a lot of sense. I don't think it makes sense to have Abamyang wide and Lacazette up front. I think an old fashioned front two. I think it really suits them. Because because they complete each other in terms of they've got um, they've both got qualities that the other hasn't, and you just get a bit more coverage of the final third, I think. Um, but obviously, there's always that question that well, if you go to teams that play four four two nowadays, usually concede possession, like your kind of um, title winning Leicester team, title winning Athletic teams. They're teams that they sit back into a block of four rather than um, you know be this enterprising and this aggressive. Um, so I thought the pressing from the front was better just because we had two players doing it, um, quite frankly, which which makes a lot of sense. Um, but but really, I, I thought that one of the bigger um, one of the bigger so so usually when you play a four four two, the reason you don't do it is because you worry about losing that body in midfield. Mm-hmm. I think we added a body in midfield by having a four four two, and that's not just because I think Saka and Smith Rowe. I'm sure we'll come on to Smith Rowe. I think he makes more sense as a wide player, mm-hmm. um, but I will I'll come on to that when we undoubtedly talk about him. Um, and and I just I think there was like greater flex in it because Saka and Smithrow can both either be like the wide forward or the wide midfielder. Mm. I think they can both do that. They can do that kind of accordion thing where they can either get forward and support the front two, or they can kind of sit back and and as we saw with Smithrow's goal as well. But I I think it was in central midfield that that really made a big difference for me. I, I, putting aside all the soft factors, which I think were big in this game, like Arteta talked about. Um, after Palace not being able to maintain things. And and, and I, I guess, to be fair to Arteta after Palace, how a team starts a game is the best indication of what they've been asked to do. And they started the Palace game aggressively and strongly and they didn't maintain it. So, you know, he's probably within his rights to say, why the fuck didn't you maintain it? Why didn't you do what I told you to do for the whole for the whole game? But for me, I think the most interesting thing about this game, along with the formation shift, which I think is really positive, not because we have to use it all the time, but it's in the back pocket, not just from the start, but it's in the back pocket from the bench if we want it as well, uh, which I think is really positive. But it was the midfield too. And this might be just because I've got a bee in my bonnet about this, but I just really don't like this thing where, um, and I'm not blaming Xhaka for this because this is what he's asked to do I really don't like this thing where we move one of our central midfielders out of the most important area of the pitch to sit him behind the left back I think it just take I, I understand why you do it but in doing that you lose coverage in the center circle and that's the most important part of the pitch and I, I just don't like it I don't like it when I didn't like it when we asked Lakonga to do it either um, when he seems a lot less suited to doing it, in my exactly, opinion. exactly. And so what we had was two. I think we had greater intensity from the middle of the pitch as well, and obviously kind of supported by Lacazette, you know, dropping back into that withdrawn striker role, and we were able to create triangles more easily with both Smith Rowe and so, like Lac- Lacazette was like 
the son of this performance that everyone pivoted around because he was dropping short to create triangles either with the midfield two or one of the wide two. And basically, I just think we had better coverage of the pitch from like the middle third to the final third. And I think under Arteta, what we've been doing is try to cover weaknesses. This was much more about accentuating strengths and that and that is emphasised in no place more and better than the not sitting someone at left back because you're worried about that space, but sitting them in central midfield. So you say, right, we're going to dominate you. And, you know, if we leave that left back space, it doesn't matter because we'll have the ball. And I think that was what this performance was about. It was much more about accentuating our strengths rather than being scared of our weaknesses. I I totally agree. And I, I think, Paul, the interesting thing about this is how much better the distances are both off the ball and on the ball, when you're just willing to be that little bit more enterprising and instead of positioning players to cover your weaknesses, you just go try to emphasize your strengths. And I, you know, I said to Clive, I'm not saying you do this against City, you do this against Liverpool, but in games like this, it seems to make a hell of a lot of sense. Like the thing that was astonishing to me is just all of a sudden, and you know, Tim called it a 4-4-2. There's really no need to split hairs on whether it's a 4-2-4, a 4-4-2, a 4-2-3-1, because you know, the positioning is is fluid, but Lacazette would obviously drop in to sort of advanced midfield in the earlier phases of buildup. And there were closer distances between Lakanga and Party and those two and Lacazette and Smith Rowe and Saka and the fullbacks. And like the way we were doing it before, Paul, in order to cover all of these weaknesses, so to speak, you know, Tomiyasu is a third center back and the left central midfielder, drops sort of in between to cover the space vacated by the left back. Well, that all sounds nice until you start to move the ball at the pitch and suddenly your next pass is 10 yards away, 15 yards away, or there's no one in the center. And because we were willing to let Tomiyasu and Tabarez go forward, and because we were willing to keep Lakanga in central midfield, all of a sudden two things happen. The next pass is two, three yards away. You can exchange passes more easily, but also when you lose the ball, you're right there to press it back with two men and take it off of them. And I thought our intention to win the ball back early was so much better and so much more coordinated because the spacing was better. So, you know, I I don't want to go backwards and say, you know, why the previous way didn't work. I'd rather emphasize why this did. But do do you agree that the distances, both in terms of controlling possession on the ball, but also in terms of winning it back, were a big reason why this worked so well? Yeah, I think the distances were a big key in this. Um, we won a lot of second balls. We didn't win all, every duel first time, but we got the second ball, the third ball, because we were always we were swarming in numbers. I think the pressing was a big part of that because we would shuttle them to one side. If Martinez, Emmy Martinez was playing out, he'd be ushered to one side, and you know Aubameyang was the trigger when he went. Um, Whichever side he pushed to, if it was Smith Rowe's side, Nuno Tavares would push up. The midfielders would move into position. So you only have to cover half a pitch at that point, and you got all your players in in position. Gabriel would push up, and they'd get ball sides. So if if it squirted through to their attacker, well, it wouldn't get to the attacker because Gabriel got ball side. On the other side, White got ball side. Mm-hmm. Um, Lakanga. Uh, might not win his duel because he's not physical enough, but uh, Party would pick it up or Tavares would pick it Party up. Party was a ball-winning machine, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah. In particular. Or maybe Party would go in, clatter into somebody, or 
Lacazette clatter into somebody in midfield, the ball would pop loose and Lacongo would get it and and uh, he was so liquid, he'd dribble past his man. Uh, to me, th- wh- how did this open up so much for us? In particular, Tavares, Smithrow and Lacanga would find ways to to beat their man, get around their man, uh, sprint past their man, kind of... Uh, with Lakanga, it's just his kind of his changes of pace, the fluidity, his movement into space with the ball, and they just kept opening it up on that side. And you know, we we know what Saka does on the right hand side. He kept getting in behind and giving them troubles that way. Um, it, it was kind of eye catching how uh, we turned their three man or five-man defense into just gaps all over the place because of how front-footed it was. But it was all about that. It was about, I talked about it a couple of times with, in particular with Brighton and in partly with Crystal Palace, our biggest problem was not getting our our players into the right spots, our resources in and around Mm -hmm. uh, where the action was. Like, uh, Brighton did it to us with Dan Burns, and we didn't respond to it. I love that you refuse to call him by his actual name. Like it's my favorite now running thing. Yeah, you 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 pluralized him basically, which is yeah, cool. fuck him, yeah. Um, Dan Byrne. Um, and in this game, we kept getting numbers. In you know, we were dictating where the ball was going to go, and we got the even though it was them kicking out, and then our distribution from the back. I mean, I, I got to get it in early, uh, especially because Tim's here and I've been trying to give him applauded for a while, but people keep barging over me when I try and make the point. But Tim was the first person to say, you know, maybe we got Ramsdale because of his long distribution, because of his distribution, not just his, he's got, he's got a bit of courage and he's got reasonable feet and he'll play out from the back. And I mean, man, has that become um, uh, prescient. There's the word I was looking for. Love it. Um, yeah. And when you add that, like Gabrielle's distribution from the back is better than I remember it. I think Ben White's excellent and is, and those three are coming into their own. Uh, like they're just comfortable on the ball. They want the ball. They're brave. They're aggressive. And they can all do brave distribution. Um you add that, but the, the pressing was such a big part of this game. And it's not because Aubameyang and whoever closed these guys down and, and tackled them. We won the ball there. We won the ball in midfield. You look at where all our um, real, this was our highest pressing game in one zone of our, of the pitch. And if I said that, people would say, oh, it's probably the attacking third. Nope. It was the, the midfield. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Far and away. Uh, our most pressing game. That's where we put but the guess pressure. Why? On. Yeah, there were two fucking midfielders in midfield. Pardon my language. Like there were two midfielders <laughs> and Lacazette yeah, and the tightness and, and the center backs mm-hmm. were were ball side. So yes, it, it, uh, like the thing I really want to see in this game, and you guys have both hit this. I want to see Lakanga and Party close together, but it wasn't just those two guys close together. We got yeah. we always got numbers around them. Yeah, and, and I touched on it with Clyde, but like we talked about our struggles with the back three. The back three forces you to make a choice. Are you going to stay deeper so that you don't get beat by the wingbacks? Or are you going to push up and challenge the wingbacks to make a decision whether to go and leave themselves totally exposed or to stay in? And if they stay in, they have no exit. And in the past, we sat deeper and we let the territory get dictated to us. In this game, we didn't do it. 
And I, I think the thing that's so interesting about pushing up the way we did, really bravely, really putting a lot of resources in the attacking half, is how much better positioned you are at that point. Your lines are compressed. You stretch properly, horizontally across the pitch. It's easier to win the ball back. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can get beat. You absolutely can get beat. But if you are willing to be brave, the reward is there, and we got the reward. They had no shots. They had no shots in the first half, and it's not because we were sitting back and defending. We didn't do any defending. We did it up the pitch or in midfield at the very least. So, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I think Aubameyang and Lacazette deserve huge credit for the running that they put in, the shift they put in. And I, you know what? It's tough because sometimes when you credit someone for putting in a shift, there will be people that are like, uh, that's literally the job. Okay, true, but there are a lot of strikers that that's not a job they want to do, and they both did it. Tim, I don't want to go another minute without talking about Tavares, though. Yeah, sure. Look, there are a lot of players that were good in this game. I, I, you know, I, I think uniformly, every player was good in this game, and that is a credit to the coach, because when every player looks good, th- the tactics are obviously right. But Tavares is a player who is interesting, because he wasn't perfect in this game. He didn't get everything right. He's one of these players that the combination of athleticism and directness means that he gets enough things right that absolutely terrify defense. Remember Pep Guardiola saying, and look, maybe he was saying it partly tongue-in-cheek, when we were getting ready to play Barcelona one of these times, said, who's the player that scares you the most at Arsenal? He said, Theo Walcott, because mm-hmm. pace will kill you. And I, I do think that Theo, for all his flaws, terrified defenses because one wrong step by the player marking him, and he's gone. And I think Tavares is exactly the kind of player that no one would want to come up against because he's he's strong, he's so powerful with his running, so quick. I thought he made a big, big difference. Now, this is not a knock on Tierney. And maybe had Tierney been allowed to play more in the way and in the system that Tavares did, he would have looked good. But I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this raw, but very toolsy, as we'd say in America, you know, very mm-hmm. physically powerful player and the difference he made, and I, I don't want to shortchange him too, by the way, because the pass he sends across to Saka on the run for what should have been really a tap in. I mean, it's 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 a bit of a it's not a terrible miss by Saka, but it's too close to the keeper. But like that's elite fullback play. So yeah, I'm curious what you what you make of that performance and the impact it, it made on the on our performance as a team. Yeah, yeah, really good, really impressive. I think I I tweeted kind of um, halfway through the first half something like Tavares's biggest strength and his biggest weakness is that he does everything at a thousand miles yeah, an hour. I retweeted that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And and like that's like for the first you know sixty seventy yards that's great. But what I loved about that pass for Saka because I I think I tweeted that before the pass to Saka, but I kind of not caveated, but the last bit of the tweet was um, he, he just needs to slow down at the last moment, you know, like be a live wire, do all of that stuff. But when it comes to the cross or something, like just take a breath, slow down and think about it. And he did for that Saka pass. And that's kind of what I'm, I want to see more of. He, um, and I think, I think it must be said as well that um, kind of uh, Smith Rowe as well, playing on the left again, I tend to think our left backs play a bit better when Smith Rowe's out there. I mm-hmm. think um, it's much more natural for them to overlap him um, than Saka. And I think Saka is much better on the right, um, which is, which is why I'd like to see those two players play there a bit more often, I think. Um, but, 
but also, like, do you know who, who Tavares, I was thinking about this earlier, who Tavares actually really reminds me of at the moment is like when Colo Torre first came into the Arsenal team. Now, if he has a career like Colo Torre, <laughs> then th- this has been a very positive story indeed, and it's gone the right way. Because, like, I still think, honestly, um, Tavares, he, like, he's one of those players that could go either way. He's one of those live wire players, and those players, they tend to either, a bit like someone like a bit like Adama Traore, right? You, you're never quite sure. You see like an elite skill set there and, and very much like an elite physical skill set and, you know, the ability Traore has to stand the ball up to the back post and things like that. But but sometimes you just think there's something missing. Um, and, and Tavares, I think, is one of those players where it's like, oh, he's got a lot of good raw materials here, but raw is the key word. Um, and and that's that's exactly how I felt about Colo Torre when he first came into the Arsenal team. You kind of looked at him and he was running around like the road runner, um, and you kind of think, "Wow, look like this guy's got something." But can he put it all together? And Colo Torre really could. Um, and actually, a positional change kind of I think did that for him. And and I don't I don't necessarily see a positional change for Tavares. I think like you know that kind of wing back role is is pretty decent for him um he could probably play on the left wing as well but but yeah this was this was i know we've only seen kind of snatches of him so far this is definitely the most impressed i've been with him but also i think it's because um his impetus it didn't look out of place in in this performance because you know you look at the athletic profile of that midfield four right they can all run both ways um, and like you said, we were, we were able to be dominant in the press. So when Tavares come, is playing in a team like that with like four midfielders who can go up and down and he can go up and down, it looks less out of place. Whereas um, I think in maybe in other games where I've seen him, maybe when I think he came on against Spurs and it was at a point when Arsenal were really sitting back and he just stuck out like a sore thumb because I don't think Tavares does like sitting back into a deep block. Mm. And um, he might have even come on in the wing in that game anyway. But you know, like how sometimes things jump out the screen at you and you're like, whoa, what's this guy doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, But actually, like it it really fitted in this performance, that kind of high energy thing. So yeah, really, really promising. I, you know, I... Obviously, it's a small sample size and all of that, but I I, I think he's a player that fans are going to love because... um, He's he's quite easy to appreciate, and I don't mean that to like have a go at fans because they're idiots. But do you know what I mean? Well, like particularly when you're in a, listeners to well, this yeah. podcast are not obviously. No, but you know when you're in a stadium as well, like those things they mm. they just matter a bit more when you see yeah. someone give that kind of energy. Well, and I mean, I think he's also the kind of player that's going to have fans pulling their hair out a little bit because yep. when someone who is athletically as gifted as he is puts it all together, he's going to look like a world beater. But there are still, I think, rough edges there that he has to smooth out technically. Yeah, it is a Theo Walcott comparison a little bit, right? Because like Theo delighted fans, but then there were days when he just looked like his boots were on the wrong feet. Um, and I don't want to reduce Tavares down to, you know, just being some uh, fast-running, strong player. I mean, there's technical skill there. That pass, again, Nisaka was incredibly skillful. There are times where I think his short passing is a little sloppy, and defensively, mm-hmm. I think that there are things he can iron out. The interesting thing about having a player like that is you almost feel like there are a lot of ways you can use him. You can use him as yeah, a left yeah. back or a right back. You can bring him in as a left or right-sided winger in certain games, right, to to push fullbacks back, pin yep. pin players back, create territory. Close games out. Yeah, there, there's a part of me that sort of wonders. In games that we want to dominate, 
if you don't need to play Tomiyasu, or let's say for some reason he's not available, and we know Mikel does not trust Cedric, does not trust Chambers, could you play Tierney on one side and Tavares on the other if you're willing to be aggressive like we were in this game because we let Tomiyasu forage forward? Imagine the threat you could have with that kind of running and delivery. And, and Tavares, I think, is just two-footed enough to actually make that work. So it'll be interesting to see how much playing time he gets and, and how he's utilized. And let's face it, Tierney's got a little bit of work to do off his form this season to show that he's the better option. I think it's way too soon to be suggesting he's not. But, but you know, mm. that that's an open question. Um, and, and, you know, one thing that I think is interesting about this performance uh, Paul, is is Tomiyasu's role because this is the most advanced we saw him get. He did a lot of underlapping, if not overlapping, uh, but he was up the pitch more. I don't, it's funny because just the fact of him running up the pitch more and being more aggressive seemed to take Villa by surprise. There's no question that teams have sort of decided they're okay with him playing the ball more and they're trying to get us to move the ball to that flank. And this time we killed him with runs from White and Tomiyasu. But I thought Tomiyasu had a mixed game in the sense that he got, you know, into dangerous areas. You can kind of see him getting altitude sickness a bit when he crosses into the attacking third. And I'm not sure the ball is always exactly what it needs to be. And I sort of wonder if there are games where if we want to play like this, a more naturally attacking or overlapping fullback might make sense. I certainly think it helped Saka's game as well to, to have those advanced positions occupied. So I'm curious how you look at Tomiyasu's game because he clearly fits the profile of that tucked in fullback in the 3-2-5 we've used. In this sort of 2-4-4 buildup or whatever that, you know, these numbers get ridiculous after a while, but it's it's a little bit of a different fit. So how do you, how do you think he fit that role that he was given and the chance to to be a little more advanced in this game? Um well, I actually thought it was great uh in uh, and a nice compliment to what was going on on the other side. I agree with you. Like the further up the pitch he gets, the like he he does have an awkward look about him, and I think at times he looks more awkward than he is. Yeah, he played that one beautiful um, left-footed pass over the other yeah. side to Tomiyasu, but like that's back in yeah. the defensive third. You don't. Yeah, it was you know, a nice switch. Yeah, you don't. Um, see that look, he 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 has moments where he looks a little labored and a little slow, but. He also has plenty of moments where he's doing something similar and you think, that's a clever pass. That's a nice pass. He moves along quickly. I thought where he really added to our attack was just the pressing in this. I mean, he was clattering in. He was yeah. he was as front-footed as anybody. He was as, He's maybe not as explosive as, as Nuno was, but he was every bit as front-footed um, charging up. Him and Saka, I think, have a good relationship and rapport. I agree he doesn't overlap. He tends to look to underlap. He he will make a run or two every game into the box and uh, throw in a little bit of the chaos factor. But he basically tucks in high up. He knows where he's trying to get to in supporting the attack. I don't know. I, th- I think... Uh, while I agree with you in the in the final third, he hasn't shown that he's, you know, he he's the kind of threat that we see on the other side. That may be absolutely perfectly acceptable from an attacking standpoint. It may just give us the platform on the right, nice and stable. He he's pretty good on connecting and and triangles, and you know, you just do something a little bit different on that side. We had Lacazette. Very much to the right. Uh, you know, I agree with you on the what was that form- formation. 4-4-2 doesn't quite do it for me. 4-2-3-1 doesn't quite. It was just kind of a, 
uh, four it depends two, where we are on the pitch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because if we're in the middle of the pitch, it was more four two three one with Lacazette dropping in. But by the time we reach the attacking end, we got it's two like strikers a two, four, in the box. Four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mo- a, a huge amount of what Lacazette did for us. Um, and the reason I bring him up is because he's operating in that area of the pitch as well with Tommy Yasu and Saka, and it just seemed to work. And and so we might see quite a bit more of that. And like Lacazette's major contribution on the pressing wasn't a, uh, along the pressing line. It was covering da- um, Douglas Luis and giving them no central outball and throwing himself around and clattering into ta- tackles, working the ref, like uh, wars are won on the street, but they're also won, won in the court. And not only did he win that penalty, but like he was chiding, smiling, grimacing, throwing himself around, uh, you know, all over the pitch. Him and him and, Lac- and Aubameyang in different ways were the real kind of drivers of this team and this energy. And uh, I think his... You know, when we look at Tomiyasu, he's if we play this way again, he'll be playing with Lacazette on that side. That seemed to be where uh, Lacazette spent most of his time and had most of his contribution over to the right. Um, and Aubameyang managed to say stay very much central in this. That's why four two four four two doesn't quite um, capture it for me because of just how central we let Aubameyang be. I know 442 <coughs> yeah. can mean many different things. It was nice uh, to see Lacazette and Aubameyang play together in a way that didn't yeah. marginalize one or the other though, right? I mean, like this yeah. this seemed like... Uh, Aubameyang I, I, was very much the striker and and Lacazette did everything else, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So. And, and they seemed happy to do it. I, I think it's... um. Well, a few, a few little details. First of all, you know, I touched on this early in the pod, but Tim, we don't need a, a huge segment on this, but a, a quick word for the fact that the corner deliveries were good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, we looked really threatening and it's because we abandoned these weird short corners and weird routes. I mean, it was just in swingers, penalty spot, try to get it on someone's head. And the delivery was great from both sides. And I think that if there's an area where we can definitely get some cheap extra goals in a season, it's got to be for attacking set pieces or attacking corners in particular. Yeah, 100%. And, and it was really the first time I'd seen party try and attack that front post. And, and um, did it I time and time and time again. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it just caught Villa by surprise, but it seemed to work um, and not just for the goal, like you said. And, and that and that makes a lot of sense. Like I, I don't know enough about Thomas party yet, I don't think, which is weird because we've had him for a year. Um, to, to know how good he is in the air, but he looked really, really good. Um, you know, he's, he's quite a big guy, but being a big guy doesn't necessarily mean you're good at competing for headers. And he was really, really aggressive in those situations. And the thing is, a lot of people get frustrated with corners because they rarely beat the front man, but that is, it's because players are told to try and hit that front post because yeah. it's basically, it's the area of maximum kind of maximum impact. If you get your head on the ball at the front post and you glance it, it, it's got a much better chance of going in than if you kind of meet it at the back post or in the middle. So the fact that we had a little bit of presence there and, and when you look at our, t- you know, when you look at our back four really well, 
three of them. Well, our back three, I guess, because our left back isn't really part of the, the defence that much. But, you know, Tommy Asu, we know he can head the ball and I'd be really interested to see how that translates into the opposition's penalty area. Um, given his kind of ability in the duel and Ben White and Gabrielle can get up. But if if we can add party to that as well, that that's really big because most teams you look at and go, yeah, their centre-backs are the threat, um, which you'd expect from set pieces. But when you can add like a central midfielder that mm. can do it as well, it, you know, just that one other player, I, th- I think that's really, really important because really none of our forwards do that certainly not from set pieces um jack i know jack he scored a header in pre-season didn't he but that that's not really his game either so just having that one extra player who can meet a set piece um and and if we can get tommy asu involved in that as well because again most teams you wouldn't have their full you the full backs up um but tommy asu is another player i think could really attack those deliveries yeah absolutely it's sort of interesting i'd, I'd love to sort of well, I wouldn't love to find out. <laughs> I'd be curious to find out if one of our center backs wasn't available, let's say Gabriel, for example, would it just be as simple as like a, a Rob Holding comes in or would it be possible that Tomiyasu, who has played left center back, I think for Japan and, and maybe as well in, in Italy, I could be wrong about that, would move over to center back. He did and play we, left center back yeah, uh, yeah. a reasonable amount last season in yeah. for Bologna. So like, because the funny thing is, again, I'm not trying to go with the Tomiyasu isn't a fullback. He cl- clearly can be a fullback. But I almost feel like there is, a, there is a scenario where we play with the sort of more traditional pushing on fullback and Tomiyasu can slot in and be a center back. And that gives us a lot of versatility there. Uh, Paul, you want a quick word on the... It's funny, I said, let's, we don't have to go big on the corners. Know, yeah. <laughs> now everybody wants to talk about the corners, but sure, fire away. No, I thought it was very interesting because they we had that uh, love-in with... G Nev and uh, Jamie Carragher over the weekend with uh, with Clive and with uh, Gunner Blog and all that kind of stuff, and yeah, they were yeah. interviewing Smith Rowe and purring about him um, before, during, and after the game. But uh, part of that interview was Smith Rowe saying that him and Saka have been working hard on their shots, but in particular him on set pieces because there aren't many. We don't have many right-footed set-piece takers. And, of course, he gets the assist on the corner. And, I, in fact, uh, I think the first uh, corner uh, – or f- is it a free kick? First corner Saka puts in wasn't very good. But after that, all of them were really good, at yeah. least as far as I remember them. Yep, so they then, were. Yeah. <laughs> so those two young fellows, uh, like Smith Rowe, might get a lot of play in terms – and the two of them set up for the two free kicks as well because we'll remember Smith Rowe kind of – doing a couple of dummies pretending he was going to take it or whatever. But those two have obviously been staying after school, working hard uh, on their set pieces. And uh, it'll be interesting to watch it develop. I guess we've seen various people step up at different times, but Smith Rowe apparently has been working hard on the set pieces and might get to take quite a few. If you like games that give you little moments to smile about later, and this is the perfect game for Twitter in a sense, because it's like so many little moments that make great little shareable videos like, Ramsdale's distribution. I mean, there's one where he just lasered, ping, you know, pinged a ball on the deck up the right wing, I guess, to was it Saka or Party on the right? Just a beautiful line breaking pass. So many good passes like that from from Ramsdale. There's the long carry from Ben White out from the back. And this is also the benefit. Look, this is the benefit of not having one of your central midfielders vacate central midfield and one of your fullbacks tuck in behind because then it's very easy for that first line of of attackers to just block off 
any access to the center of the pitch, but by pinning those attackers to, to party and, and um, uh, Lakanga, it opens up a lane and white just takes it and away he goes. That was brilliant. The, the player though, that Paul just mentioned, Tim is one that I, I think we can go a little deeper on and that's Emil Smith Rowe. Mm-hmm. I can't help, but see a little bit of Aaron Ramsey in the running. Yep. You know, um, it was Carragher said he was, he, you know, he's the best player in the league with the ball at his feet. You'd be the judge, but like, the directness of his running and the the power of it off the ball and on the ball, because on the ball, he just carries it and goes forward. Doesn't always make the right choice at the end of the move. That could come and will come, I believe. But there's the off the ball running. I mean, the, the, the goal he scores is a little bit lucky, but it's sort of a carbon copy of the one against Spurs with mm-hmm. the, the flick from Oba. This time, the flick's a little less good. Smithrow does well to control it and away he goes. But he's just such a direct runner. And I think it's interesting to have him and Sack on opposite flanks because... They give you a little opposite things. I mean, Saka on the ball is tricky and technical and, you know, great close control and decision-making and can beat a man off the dribble. And Smith-Rowe is just a, you know, a forward motion machine with hard running directly towards the goal. I, I love I love watching him play right now. And I, I think, I, I personally think he could be the 10, but obviously, like, you know, you said you like him better on the wing. I think the point is he can do it both places. But what do you think of that comparison, the, the sort of Ramsey running and the way that that deeper... That that run those runs from deeper really challenge defenses in terms of picking up the picking up the man. Yeah, definitely. And and the thing is, he can do it with the ball um, as mm. well. There are a few players who can dribble with the ball like that. I, I think what we will see is that Smith Rowe can really become a goal a goal scoring wide midfielder. I was um, bef- before this game, I was looking at his numbers. Um, on FB Ref because I was quite interested in. I was thinking he 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 looks like he's taking more shots this season, and I looked it up, and he is taking more shots. It's moved from zero point thirteen shots per ninety to zero point twenty this season. Not not an enormous movement, you know, but like mm. a movement nonetheless. Um, and on uh, on, but his expected assists have gone down. Um, almost exactly proportionately to the level that his shots have gone up. So what does that tell you? That tells you, I think, and I think we can infer this from what Arteta said around the time he signed the contract as well. He's probably been told, look, when you're in the last kind of 18, 15 yards, pass less, shoot more, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a much more decisive player. I, I know I said last season, wait and see, like this boy can score goals. That's what he did at youth level. At youth level, he was, um, when I say he was a guy who made goals, like he, he played, I think, largely as a kind of wide forward at youth level. He was a guy that made goals, but not in the number 10 sense, almost more in like a Martinelli sense in Mm. that he can run and beat players and he's got really quick feet and he can shoot with very little back lift. And when when he plays as a number 10, we see him get to that penalty spot quite a bit, but I really like it wide because I think from there he can really get on the ball and drive it forward um, a lot more than, than in the number 10 space, which I think is a more one-touch technical space. And you're right, he can do that because he's a a combination player. But the reason I like him out wide is, A, I think, um, I just think it will bring out the goals in him a little bit more because I I think that's slightly more what he is. Um, I think he is going to be slightly more of a a kind of goal scorer. I think, basically, I think he's better in the penalty area 
often he is in the space between the centre circle and the penalty area, if that makes sense. And that doesn't mean like he's good at both of them, but I think he's slightly better um, in the higher spaces. And I just think you get that more when he plays on that wide left, particularly on the left, because obviously he's right-footed, so he's going to drive in. Um, and we saw that with this goal. You know, I know like it's on the counter, but I mean, look at where he starts from and the burst. So that that's your Ramsey part there. <laughs> the kind of mm. the off the ball burst and the seeing the space before anyone else and going for it but then when he collects the ball I mean that's difficult e- even with the space he had that's difficult to run with the ball like that without tripping over your own feet or the ball like he's just got a real explosiveness uh, kind of on the ball and and I, I really think that's what we're seeing now and I, and I think um you know, with the signing of Erdegaard, there's more freedom for him to do that, for him to take that kind of wide left role. And and I really don't think that... I think what's interesting about Saka and Smith-Rowe is that they're both, they're both creative and they score. Whereas I think a lot of our other strikers, our, our other forwards are kind of very much one thing or the other. Whereas those two, the reason they both always play, I think, is because they've got both and they can Mm. both go both ways. They're both good in tight spaces. They're good at running into open space. Look at how England used Saka. England used Saka because they were playing on the counter-attack and because he can spin you out. Like he, he He can transition you from the middle third to the final third very quickly. Um, I, I think Smith Rowe does does something very uh, very very similar, which is why he's scoring a lot of counter attack goals as well. And yeah, I I think what we're seeing is closer to a wide a wide forward um, developing here, and uh, and that's great. Yeah, he's added almost one full additional shot per ninety, and you know an extra shot a game. You know if if those shots are point one five or point two x, you can get overly mathematical about this but you're talking about an extra goal every four or five games um and that's a lot that's a lot of goals over the course of a season um you know as it stands right now you know he's he's on pace for a very productive season but i think there's still a lot more to come from him paul i i think it'd probably be wrong to shut you out of a smith row conversation because i know how highly you think of him i'd just like to say that like it is interesting how luck can play a part in how your game is viewed, though, because Smith Rowe is excellent in this game regardless, but he gets his goal from a slice of luck. Deserved luck. You make your own luck, right, uh, is the cliche, yep. and I think it's true here. Saka a little unfortunate with his finish, but, you know, if he tucks that away, we're talking about how dangerous his running is. Now he gets into a great spot, and Tavares gets the assist there, and that goal is absolutely thrilling and picture-perfect. It doesn't work out that way, and so we're a little more focused on Smith Rowe than Saka, but both of them, I mean, statistically look really good in this game. I think the thing with Smith Rowe that that's interesting for me, Paul, is like we've got we've got this this kind of squad thing, and it's just hard to get away from, right? Because you've got Saka and Oba and Laka and Smith Rowe and Pepe and Martinelli, and that's the cluster. And then there's Odegaard, and he's sort of that piece that changes the way you're going to do things. I mean, when Odegaard came on this game, I'm not going to say it was bad. He had that one ball he pinged into Oba in the box that was brilliant vision and execution. It was just fired so hard at him. He didn't really quite, uh, wasn't able to get it fully under control. But like a very different type of player who does things very differently, maybe a little more ball dominant, but maybe a little less dynamic and final third oriented. I don't know. So the way these pieces fit together is really interesting to me. Smithrow and Saka have, have been handed to us on an absolute silver platter here. Two academy players that look like they will go to the top. I'm curious how you see all these pieces fitting together and, and Smith Rose 
ultimate, ultimate role slash position, if those things even exist in football anymore, I'm increasingly skeptical. Because I, I think as I look at that group, I kind of have a sense of what each player can give us. And then I'm not totally sure where the Odegaard piece fits in and how that how that impacts things. So how, how do you view that that shaking out, especially in a game that's our best of the season? With you know, with no ill will intended towards Odegaard, but with with him not present. Yeah, well, it might end up in more of a Lancazette versus Odegaard than Mitrow yep. versus Odegaard discussion. But uh, look, <laughs> my problem is I'm I'm running up the numbers on number of players I love and want to see on the pitch. I love Odegaard. Yeah. I think he's going to be great. I think he'll come up a couple of you know we've seen. Uh, Smithrow step up levels and that that was something I was going to add to Tim's conversation where we're talking about shots and goals and, and your your points on that but the other thing that's come come right up I mean he hasn't been cowed by this promotion in effect by this the number 10 on his back by the new contract by the the manager saying I'm asking for more from him um uh, I thought he was just talking a good game when he said he wanted the number 10 number. I thought that maybe that was more an agent thing, but no, I I think he is that level of confident and cocky. But the other thing that's come up is his dribbles and carries have shot up this year. Um, so like successful dribbles, he's on 2.4, 2.5 a game compared to last season he was like half a dribble a game successful now he was taking on a couple of dribbles a game last last season but he wasn't completing them and now he's he's well above that he's he's doing more he's completing more uh, his carries as well in terms of distance his progressive distances his carries into the final third into the pen he's just being very direct and very aggressive very much more uh, Aaron Ramsey than he even was last year in terms of he knows where he wants to get there, where he wants to get to, and he goes there. So, um, like, he's just stepping up and his confidence is is swelling. And it's not Smith-Rowe versus anybody at this stage. Him and, and Saka, I mean, I think they pretty much started every game, basically. If they're available and fit and ready to go, they start. And so... Yeah, the, I don't see anyone being ahead of them. I don't no. see how anyone can be ahead of them. And, <clears throat> I, you know, it, it it's difficult because it is a very Arsenal thing or maybe just more a me thing to worry about having too many good players at a position. Like, it's not the end of the world. In fact, it's quite a good thing. I think the player who may struggle to sort of find where he fits this group best and understand what he can give to this group the most might be Odegaard. I don't know, Tim, I mean, is that... Is that overstating? And again, I'm not trying to turn this to a negative because mm. it was such a perfect night. One through 11, great performances. Um, you know, we did we did fade a little bit late. And I think maybe it's the fitness angle where you're seeing work to be done in the team because we gave so much early and then players look pretty shattered by the end. Um, Aubameyang and Lacazette in particular. But do you, is, is that a player who, in terms of what we saw in this game, gives us something very different and maybe requires us to do a little rethink? Um, I, he's a player I'm not really worried about, um, to be honest. I, I think what we're seeing at the moment this season is there are different games for different players. There aren't many games this season, I would have said, were Lacazette games, but 
he's come in and positively impacted too now. Um, I don't necessarily think that means that he will continue to positively impact all of them. I, I've, I think I've always said for the last year or so, in fact, when we got that kind of, when Smith Rowe came into the team last December and it looked like we had a front three that worked, I kind of said the next challenge for Arteta is to kind of get a rotating cast of attackers because that's what we've got. We, we're quite top-heavy. Like We've got a lot of talent up front doesn't, in, in the forward positions, rather. It doesn't necessarily always fit together. Um, but I, I saw the next evolution at that point in Arteta's management being able to kind of rotate those options effectively. There'll be, be Odegaard games. I think, um, I think it is, it's kind of multiplied by the fact that he probably hasn't been that impressive in the last couple of games. But I do think that's because we've dropped him into a really deep role. Um, or maybe that's overstating it, but we've dropped him into a deeper role and that just means that he hasn't been able to affect the game higher up. I think, you know, let's say he starts against Leicester and he starts as a proper number 10 and not as a number eight. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we came on the podcast afterwards and said, hmm, Odegaard's great, he should play all the time. Like, I think probably what I've learned about this squad over the last year or so is definitely maybe other than Saka and Smith Rowe that it it really can be a little bit horses for courses and it's the same with the formation in this game I don't think this means we must play this formation all the time um, but I think it it makes it an option um, and an option that we can enact maybe halfway through a game so obviously in a more 4-4-2 shape then yeah Erdegaard just doesn't have a space in that um, but I, I don't necessarily think that this is a shape we'll see um, even against Leicester on 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 Saturday. I wouldn't be surprised if Erdegaard starts that game, plays well, and then we don't have this conversation again. Yeah, and it's not really a question of can he play well. It's just, I think we have a lot of players who stylistically, you can swap them out and you sort of get some of the same thing. I mean, Martinelli and Smith-Rowe are not the same player, but you can get that direct running. Pepe and Saka, again, not the same player, but inverted right winger cut onto the left looks very dangerous in one-on-one situations. And, you know, obviously using Lacazette to drop in at 10 and and make a second striker, very different from using Odegaard. Just be interesting to see how these systems evolve. Um, I'll stay with you for a second, Tim, because Manchester United getting smoked by Liverpool is absolutely hilarious to me. Yep. Um, just absolutely hilarious. Wonderful, hilarious. Enjoyed every bit about it. Enjoyed your meme of Sir Alex Ferguson um, doing the how am I doing boss thing or whatever, you know, Ole and Fergie looking like he wanted to <laughs> throw up. Um, just so so many funny things coming out of that. One thing that wasn't funny, by the way, I thought what Paul Pogba did was disgraceful, frankly. Mm. Um, maybe I'm being a little bit too your da, but like he didn't want to be there. He measured him. He went in two foot. Yeah, and I mean... He takes out a player who is just now back playing and contributing after having an injury struck career. You know, I'm not going to cry too many tears over over a Liverpool player, but I thought that was really ugly. I thought that showed a real lack of professionalism and respect for a fellow professional. So, not a great thing to see. But like otherwise, a pretty damn funny day that I enjoyed. But the thing that's interesting is like it really made me think, Tim. Chelsea, Liverpool, City. They're playing a yep. different sport. They're on a yep. different plane. They are at a different level. We're not there. Guess what? No one else is there. Everybody else. I mean, Wolves, Arsenal, Leicester, Everton, United, Spurs, Brighton, West Ham. You could throw Brentford in there if you want. They're all kind of playing the same game. Maybe varying levels and maybe it's too early and this will shake out. But it feels to me like that cluster is going to be somewhat clustered. 
the whole mm-hmm. way through. And so, you know, uh, unless Ole goes and Conte comes in and suddenly he straightens out United, I, I don't see it happening, but we'll wait and see. I mean, you get a feeling watching Liverpool just pound United in the submission that, and let's face it, we played two of Chelsea, Liverpool, and City already. Not to great effect ourselves. Like, is this going to be an absolute street fight as open as you can imagine for f- even top four, fourth, fifth, yeah, sixth? Yeah. Those positions to me look like you could throw any of those names I mentioned into the air and however they landed, I'd believe you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, if you're Mikel Arteta or if you manage any of those teams right now, that's what you're saying, isn't it? You're saying, right, okay, top three. No, that's, that's, we're, we're a way off that, but. Fourth could be there. Um, and you know that old saying that um, and th- this probably shouldn't apply to Arsenal, um, a club of our size and means, but um, for some of those other names you've kind of thrown into the, the ring there, like uh, West Ham and um, a smaller London club called Spurs. Th- that old saying that, you know, if you try and hit the stars, you might not hit the stars, but you'll hit the ceiling trying. Um, so some of those clubs who may have been thinking, well, you know, eighth or ninth, that would be all right. Seventh, that would be progress. Suddenly, if they start scrabbling for fourth and they think that's open, they might not get fourth, but they might get fifth or sixth trying. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking of West Ham there. Um, albeit they got in the top six last season, Everton, someone like that, you kind of think, all right, let's set our sights on fourth and, you know, really go all out for that. Um, but but it, it is interesting in terms of the dynamic because I, I must admit, as much as I thought that Ronaldo signing would cause structural problems for United that would probably be solved by Ronaldo's individual talent, like I think I, I always thought it will giveth and it will taketh away. Like against Atalanta, right? They went two 0 down largely because of. I mean, it's this is too simplistic but because of some of the structural issues that Ronaldo's given them but then who scores the winner to make it 3-2 mm-hmm. and and that in a nutshell kind of sums up what they've done with that signing um but what really what it's done as well it's had a knock-on effect because the guy they really wanted and went for Jaden Sancho is completely out in the cold um and looks more like doing a Donny van der Beek than anything at the moment so um, yeah, it, it it makes fourth wide open, and that's if you if you're Mikel Arteta at the moment, that's what you're saying to your players: fight for every fucking point. That last minute equaliser for Lacazette against Palace, great. That's you know not a great day, but that point might might really add up at the end of the season. And and of course we got United um, in four weeks' time, I think December the first, mm-hmm. something 2nd, like that. Yep. So yeah, December second at Old Trafford. So. You know that 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 makes things really five nil or just four nil. You think? <laughs> I, I, I I'd take either. To be fair, uh, I won't well, split hairs there. And let me remind everybody: it's about to get real interesting for that United team now without Pogba for three games. Because next it's Spurs, and then it's City, and then it's Watford, and then it's Chelsea, and then it's Arsenal. I mean, they're in deep, deep shit. So Paul will finish, I guess, by saying there's a huge. There's a huge benefit to being brave. And what I mean by being brave is go try to win games. Go play to win games because you can drop some points here or there. The odd win, playing to get wins, picking up three points against any of these teams, Everton, Leicester, Spurs, Brighton, even West Ham. Like there's going to be so much reward there. I just feel like you're going to be able to drop points this season and never fall too far out of touch with this middle cluster. I don't see anybody running away with it. Um, all the teams have some warts, have some issues. We're certainly on the best run of form since the close of the transfer window. I think we are fourth 
or third, maybe in the Premier League, something like that. So I don't know, Paul, like while we're laughing at United and realizing it's about to get a lot worse for them, should we be really seeing the chance to seize an opportunity? And I know it sounds crazy to like talk about top four. I think the 538 has us at like up to like a 15% chance or something. And that might sound low, but realize at one point, I think it was like 2%. That is an open spot for someone to go have a run at. Yeah. I mean, we're three points off it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we're 14 out of 18 points in our in our last six games, basically since the season proper started, as I call it. <laughs> as we like to say, yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know, maybe I'm doing my math wrong, but that puts us second behind Chelsea, who are 15 out of 18. Now, we had a little bit easier schedule, obviously. We haven't played any of the big boys in the last six. But hey, if, if you're feeding the the belief into your team... And you look at an unbeaten run of six games, 14 out of 18 points. There's something to build on there. I think the other thing is you look at moments in seasons, and we saw that uh, last season where things changed and things clicked. And Arteta used the term click um, for what maybe happened here. And you look at the transformation, not the progression, the transformation of Aubameyang and maybe Lacazette too if he starts playing uh, more often for us in terms of how they play for us. I mean, he was great uh, in this game, not because of what he did in the attacking sense. It's what he did in terms of leading this team along the back line, the press. The, the, uh, Arteta's word was what he transmitted um, and what Lacazette transmitted and that poor fella has been on the bench for for most of the season mm-hmm. uh, so far, coming off for uh, Crystal Palace the last 20, 25 minutes and like giving us the ad- ad- adrenaline injection you see in Pulp Fiction to the chest. Um, and, you know, Arteta said, I decided during that game Lacazette was going to start um, against Villa. And I think this whole team came out of that game realising not intellectually, but deep down inside, getting the first goal does nothing for you. You got to keep playing, and that was that was what we took out of Crystal Palace and into this game. And I just hope that lesson—that's the problem with a young team. Sometimes they have to keep learning the same lesson over and over again. If we learn that lesson, uh, you know, we could have a hell of a season here. It could click and stay clicked. So I hope we stay brave, collectively mm. brave. It's a, we talked about this on the instant reaction pod. It's like individuals can be brave. Individuals can run around like headless chickens. Individuals can try and make the difference. It don't mean a thing. Uh, you got to click as a team. You got to be brave yep. as a team. You got to be- look to each other, see it in each other's eyes. So we'll see where it goes. But but uh, you you got to say the door might be open here, especially if. Uh, United don't make a good move here. They really need to give Ali uh, the the time, time he needs. He needs the time. The time. He the time needs he time. Needs. Trust the process. Look, I think there's only one way to say it. You two have been beating around the bush, and I'm sick of this. It's not yep. what this podcast is about. Yeah. It's back on. <laughs> it's back on. Tim, it's back on. Is it back it, on? It's back on until it's the next on. game. Yeah, well, that's how this season's going to work, isn't it? Uh, This is going to be one of those seasons. It's back on until it isn't. But I would much rather watch us try to have it be back on playing the way we did against Villa 
them playing the way we did against Brighton and Palace. I know it's easy to say, like, oh, yeah, you'd rather see our good performances than our bad. But I mean, pressing up the pitch, let the fullbacks go up, let the central midfielders stay together. Um, Yeah, it's back on. I think we can leave it there. Everybody knows what I mean. It is back on, and we will be back on with the podcast tomorrow. Rewatch of the first half against Villa with Clive and myself for patrons. I hope you will join us there. If not, we're just glad you're joining us here. Just glad you're joining us at all because you're the best and we love you. Seriously. Absolutely straight fucking love you. Tim's on Twitter at Shiberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Pause. Woohoo. My name is Elliot Smith. I'm back on. Sorry. I'm sorry about that, but I am. What can I say? <laughs> you know, we got leads tomorrow. More football. The football it never ends. It's on all the time. All the football is happening all the time. Hey, start for Gabriel Martinelli. That'd be fun. Let's see. We love you. We will talk to you after Arsenal 10 leads him. therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too connect with a credentialed therapist by phone video or online chat all from the comfort of your home visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10 percent on your first month that's better help h-e-l-p